In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one, he creates light, and he says it's good. Day two, he separates the waters, and he says it's good. Day three, he gathers up the waters together to create dry land, and he creates the vegetation on the land, and he says it's good. Day four, he creates the sun and the moon, which makes you wonder how there was days before the sun and the moon, but he creates the sun and the moon, and he says it's good. Day five, he fills the waters with every living creature, and he says, it's good. Day six, he fills the land with living creatures. He says, it's good. And he makes man, and he says, it's very good. And then we begin to, to continue on in the story, and we get to chapter three, and we begin to read about magical trees and talking serpents, and, and we find that, that the the humans that he put in the garden are posed with a question about the trees. And the serpent says to them that you certainly won't die. The problem is this. The problem is, is that God knows that when you eat the tree, you will become like him. And see, God doesn't want that. God doesn't want you to become like him because he likes being in charge. And he wants to stay in charge. And so they, they eat from the tree. God re-enters the scene and he says to the humans, where are you? And the man says, I heard you coming into the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? And then the blame game starts, doesn't it? Adam starts to say, well, it's her. And they start the serpent. My point in this story is, is that the moment that you begin to believe lies about God. Now follow me on this. This is really, really important. Sometimes we, we get into the Bible and we, we, we begin to, to, to look at the Bible and have arguments about the Bible and what it is and what it's not. Is it a historical book? Is it a scientific book? And we miss the most important things about the Bible. When we read this story, this actually this poem at the beginning of Genesis, what we, what we learn is this. The moment that you and I begin to believe lies about God, at that moment, we begin to believe lies about ourselves. And so the most important thing that you and I have in this world is our, our mental image of God of who He is. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So you, the title of this, uh, this message for this day is, How Does God See Me? And what I want to underscore for our time together this morning is, I want us to talk about how do we discover the real you, the real me. Because we need to change this. Now, we're going to have to get into a little bit of uh, a little bit of brain science, okay, to help us understand uh, the 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 person that we understand ourselves to be. When we talk about ourselves, unfortunately, the 
the you that you experience, the me that I experience, has been largely defined, uh, largely defined by others and also by our false image of God. Tim mentioned that if you, uh, the God that we worship, we eventually become. So if your image of God is a, is a judgmental God, if he's a punitive God, am I supposed to stay on this carpet, Tim? Is that like the idea with the carpet here? I'm just, I keep getting to the edge and thinking, I, 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 better, I better be careful I don't. Well, if I'll be out of the camera, I'm not sure. It, you'll become like that image that you worship. Why, why do you think there are so many people in the, in, in the Christian tradition that that's, what they, that's all they do is judge? Judge everything. Judge people by their, their dress, the color of their skin, uh, their social, social economic status. They judge, 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 judge. Well, if that's the God that you worship, then you'll become like that God. Not only that, the you that you are, the me that I am, has been largely handed to us by our family of origin, by our upbringing, by my past experiences. And we're going to talk a, a lot about that today. By the culture that we're submerged in, right? There are so, so oftentimes we have, we have cultural biases that we have. And we impose those on Scripture. We impose those on the things that we're reading. Right? There are, there are things that we value as Americans. There's a uh, passage of Scripture that talks about dressing, uh, dressing modestly. And, and, and automatically in America, we view that as uh, not sexual, right? Dress modestly, right? Wouldn't everybody agree with that? First century, that's not what Paul was talking about. What Paul was saying, he was saying, if you have wealth, don't come in dressed like that, right? So, so will we impose the, the sexual nature on that because that's our, that's our bias. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. So Paul might, be, Paul might say something like this today. Listen, uh, if you drive to church, don't, don't come in your, in your Cadillac Escalade. I'm just telling you that's what Paul would be saying, right? Don't, don't flaunt your economic status over others. That's what the modesty is. And so we impose these things on Scripture because of our, the culture that we're submersed in. The media bombards us continually. We come to false conclusions uh, to all of the above because of the way our brain has been conditioned. Now listen to this. To the extent that those things that you've been handed, most of you had a, a concept of image of God before you ever one time picked up the Bible. So you already had a narrative of the God story. Every one of us had a narrative of the God story. And so when you pick up the Bible and you start reading it, that narrative, you think the Bible's informing your narrative, it's not. Your narrative is informing what you're reading. Now, as far as that narrative is right, that's good. But if the narrative is wrong, 
and it's informing Scripture, we come away with a wrong idea of who God is. Tim, Tim mentioned, I think this is, this, is, this is so important, so brilliant. The words that we choose to use and say are so important because they will condition us. They will condition our, the way we live and the way we think. If we sing songs about God being far away and pleading Him to come, to come and be part of this, well, that's our, that's our concept. That's the way we live. That's the way we uh, understand God, that He's somewhere else rather than here, within us, within me. When we talk about this place being a sanctuary and up here being an altar, we create these different spaces. Somehow we think that this space up here must be holier than the place that you're sitting, which is holier than your car, which might be holier than your house. Are you with me? Those things are so important. The way we talk about God is important. So to the extent that in which these things line up with the truth, what's the truth? Jesus. As far as these things line up with the truth, they're good. But to the extent that they do not line up, right, your upbringing, the culture, all these things, that they don't line up with what Jesus says, then they're a lie. They're a lie. And we end up living a lie. Let me, let me give you a case study that I read. There's a man who is uh, a young dad, and he's putting together a swing set for his young boy. You could, you could imagine this, this picture, can't you? Right? He has his toolbox out. He's putting it together. There was some paper that came in the box that he threw away because we don't need that. I don't need that. And so we're putting it together, and, 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 and frustration sets in. Men, anybody? Anybody? Frustration sets in. And things aren't going together right. And, how, how, you know, who put these holes? These, they don't even line up. These holes don't even line up. How are you supposed to get the bolt through there? And so you get frustrated. And so the, the, the young father tells his young son, son, would you go get me a 5-16th box-end wrench? The boy runs off because all the boy wants to do is please his dad. That's all he wants to do in life. He runs off to the toolbox. He comes back with a crescent wrench. He hands it to his dad. Dad, in his frustration, says, what's wrong with you? You're about as worthless as screen doors on a submarine. Now, the boy doesn't know what submarines are. doesn't understand that. But he does know one thing. He does know one thing. His dad says he's worthless. And he's worthless. His dad told him he's worthless. Why? Because he made a mistake. And so there is, a, there is something implanted in that boy from early on that he begins to think about himself that I am no good when... When am I no good? When I make a mistake. That young boy grows up to be a perfectionist. I can't make mistakes. Because if I make mistakes, it'll show that I am of no value. I am worthless. Are you following me so far? And so, so this young boy grows up thinking that, that mistakes are about your self-worth. What are mistakes about? Mistakes are about learning right? You try something, it doesn't work. You try something else, and you learn, and you grow, right? A mature person understands that. 
But because a, because a neural network was established in this young boy when he was just a, just a, just a small tyke, established in there, he begins to, to live his life conditioned by a lie. He begins to hide things about himself. He won't do things that he's not good at for fear of making a mistake. Because mistakes show that I am of no value and that I have no worth. So the you that you are, the me that I am, is the total sum of our thoughts, our memories that make up our brain. Now this you that I'm describing, if it doesn't line up with what Jesus says about you, is a lie. It's a lie. So it's easy to see this young boy is living a lie. Now the trouble is this. The trouble is sheer logic or reason doesn't overcome that. Because the neural nets that, happen, that, are, that are in your brain, the more they're reinforced, the stronger they get and the faster they become. So by the time you try to use logic, the neural net has already been established and already, I already know that I am of no consequence. So if what you are experiencing about yourself doesn't line up with what God says about you, then you're being deceived. You and I are living a lie. And it's a false image of self that wasn't for the most part, now get to this, this is, this is the kicker, that wasn't for the most part installed by you. It was installed by others. It was installed by false images of who God is. Now the problem is this, is that we empower this lie to define us when we accept what we experience as real to be true. I'm going to say that again because you need to really think about that. We empower these lies to define us when we accept what we experience to be real. So the young boy experienced his worth and value to be real, right? Wouldn't you agree? Because his father said it. His experience seems real to you. And you might say, well, Jeff, isn't that what's real is our experience? No. As long as it doesn't line up with what God says about you. And so we think these things that we experience to be real as true. And if you assume that your experiences are truth, all of them, then you have no hope of adjusting your experience to line up with truth. Maybe, how about this, have you ever heard somebody or you said yourself, uh, a sincere believer might say things like, uh, there's no hope for me. This is just the way that I am. I'm worthless. God doesn't care about me. I'm no good. I'm unlovable. I have nothing to offer. I can't even forgive myself. Now, what we can know is this. We can know that those things reflect what feels real. They do. They reflect what feels real. 
But what I'm proposing to you is this is the false you. The true you is what, is what Jesus says about you. So, so in the movie, if you remember the movie, there's a time when, when Mac's sitting with Papa, and Papa looks at him and says, See, your, prop, your fundamental problem is this. You don't believe that I am good. You don't believe that I am good. See, friends, we are created to receive and experience abundant life from God, which includes unconditional, unsurpassing love and worth. And then we are to reflect this out of the fullness of our hearts to others around us. But when we accept this, uh, when we embrace this deep structure lie about God, what it does is it disrupts the flow of abundant life to us. So what happens is, is we try to acquire our worth by the only thing that we think we can is the world around us that we think is all that's real. So we try to establish our worth by what you can do. Try to establish your worth by that. What I can do, I'm, I'm, I'm good at this. I can make a lot of money. I can build this. I can do that. Or, or by who we can impress. Or by how much we can possess. We are, we spend our lives desperately trying to acquire by our own efforts, that which God says we already have for free. And we waste our life chasing it. Because we all need to be, we all need and want to be loved, to be needed, to be appreciated, to be told that you're important. We need intimacy. We long to have value and meaning for our life. We just don't understand that we already have all of those things in Christ, so we go looking for them. As the song says, we go looking for love where? In all the wrong places. So friend, this is life under the lie. Now, I was talking with a friend last night. I was talking about how how the ancients, you know, when they wrote things, they didn't understand things like we understand them now, right? We understand, that we, we understand the cosmos a lot better today than they did in the first century, right? There was a time when, when in, in, in uh, uh, people who were people of faith thought the earth was the center of the universe and that it was flat, and, and they could go to Scripture and show you, they could show you where it says in Psalm that the sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it began. See, that proves that the sun goes around the earth. Because Scripture is always true. Until Copernicus and Galileo come along and they say, oh, that's not right. You can't, you can't tell people that worship this that this isn't right. They'll lock you up like they did to Copernicus and Galileo. Locked them up. Can't say that. But lo and behold, it's, it's, not, it's not right. So, 
the Bible talks about things that, that if, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll mysticize them and make it to be something that, that it's not. I want to read a passage of Scripture to you. I think they're going to put it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 10.5. I want you to follow me on this. The Bible says this, We begin to tear down, demolish arguments. Arguments are wrong thoughts about you. Those are arguments. We begin to tear them down, demolish arguments. And every pretense, a pretense is the act of giving a false appearance that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, the truth, and we take captive those thoughts, we take control of them, and then we make those thoughts obedient to Christ, to the truth. Are you with me? This is a really, really important scripture for us. So what we know is, is the neural nets in our head make up who we are. What the Bible's saying is, but if those don't line up with truth, they're arguments and pretenses. And the Bible says what you need to do is you need to tear them down. You need to demolish them. You need to destroy them. Those things that, that you have been living, that you have been believing about you that aren't true about you. Even though your experiences make you think that they are real. And to the extent they are, they're just not true. And so the Bible tells us that we need to, to tear those down and replace them with what's true about us. God is inviting us and has always been inviting us into a real, loving, restorative relationship with Him and also with others. It's how Jesus summed everything up. He said, love God and love others. So when you see God, the true God, you see Him for who He is. That's what you reflect. You reflect that image. We were going to have some mirrors out here. It didn't, didn't kind of work. But to the extent that the mirror is good, it's a good reflection. If it's a broken mirror, a dirty mirror, a right? Have you ever go to a, uh, one of those uh, like amusement parks and they have those mirrors that make you look, you know, I, I need the ones that make you look like this. Right? Just kind of, right? It gives you a false image of who you are. Friend, your mental image of who God is is so very important. See, we get the wrong idea. We have this idea that, that, that a characteristic of God is love. And then we read and we go, oh yeah, that's true. And, and, but, 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 however, He's also wrathful and He's also vengeful and He's also these things. See, see love is not a characteristic of God like it is for us. We can be loving. We could be mean. We could, Right? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that He is love. It's not a characteristic of His. It's what He is. He's love. And that He's good. 
friend of mine said something to me recently, and I've been using this. He said, I, when I think of anything and I read anything, he said, I give it the love test. If it doesn't pass the love test, then I, I think, okay, there's something else going on that I, I just don't fully understand right now. And I, I'm okay with that too. I'm okay with that. But there's something else going on. Why? Because God is love. So you could say, I give it the love test, or I give it the God test. This is my image of Him. So if I see something in here I don't understand, I just go, well, I just don't understand that. Or the person writing it didn't understand it properly. Something else is going on because it doesn't pass the love test. So we need to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us. When we do, how you see God affects how you see yourself, which in turn affects how you see others, which in turn dictates how you treat others. So your image of God will, will make you a better spouse, will help you be a better sibling, a better friend, a better employee, a better employer. Your image of God. Now, I, I want to I do something, if, if we can. A little thought experiment, okay? Because what I want you to know is you are made up of the, uh, uh, the, the sum total of your neural nets in your brain. And like I said, a lot of those are put there, not established by you. Your narrative of who God is has been, in, in, in large measure, placed by somebody else. So the Bible says this, we need to learn how to tear down those strongholds. They are strongholds. They're tough. It's the, long, the more times that, that neural net uh, runs, the stronger it becomes. So you learn how to tear it down and replace it with truth. So I'm going to ask you to do something. You may feel uncomfortable with this. But let me, do, let me just, let me set it up real quick. I have a couple more minutes. Let me set it up with something. Here's how your brain works. If you, if you are a golfer and you in your mind see yourself in your mind's eye doing a proper swing, right, with your hips, with turning, with follow through everything, and you see yourself doing it over and over and over the proper way. When you go to do it, it'll be, your, your body will think that it's done it already. It's the way our brain works, right? Neuroscience tells us that. It's just true. That's why Jesus says this. Yeah, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. But he says, if you've already done it, if you already thought it in your mind, you've already done it. Right? Neuroscience is saying, yes, that's exactly true. That's exactly true. So we, we condition our mind. We tell our mind what truth is. We don't let external things, right, deceive us and tell us what truth is or other people. We control our mind, our thoughts. And so we take thoughts that are wrong and we tear them down. And so here's what I want you to do with me. I'd like you to close your eyes. With your eyes closed, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to picture Jesus. It's not important what he looks like, but I want you to picture him. Now it's your mind. You can do whatever you want. 
Now, I want you to see him walking towards you. I want you to see him come and stand right in front of you. I want you to see him in your mind's eye to reach up and gently hold your face in his hands. As he looks deep into your eyes, he says, he calls you by name. He says to you, I love you more than you could possibly imagine. I cannot love you more than I do right now. I love you with an everlasting love. You are my beloved child and my radiant bride. He gently says your name again and says, I sing and dance over you. I rejoice that I've found you in your mind. I will never leave you or forsake you, never. I consider it a joy to give my life so that we can be together eternally. While still looking deeply into your eyes, he says, I know you better than you know yourself. And I love you. I know your struggles. I know your wounds. I know your hurts. And together we're going to conquer all those things and we're going to heal your wounds together. And you're going to shine like the sun when we are through. Now still with your eyes closed, there may be parts of you right now that resist experiencing this this intimate way of thinking about Jesus. As a matter of fact, right now in your mind, you may be hearing a voice saying, well, this, this isn't even real. Or this can't be true. This isn't Christianity. There may be those here today that are feeling a sense of shame and guilt right now. Maybe you had a hard time of Jesus even approaching you. Maybe there's a guy here saying, men don't do things like this. Picture Jesus saying loving things to me. This isn't macho. I want you, I want you now just in your, own, in your own heart, in your own mind, your own thoughts. I want you to think this. On God's authority, I receive these thoughts as true. Now, by allowing Jesus to love you in those thoughts. You're permitting Him to love you out of all those negative thoughts. Friends, this is all, this is all I believe it's all rooted in Scripture. With your eyes closed, just, just listen to this verse. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces, 
all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus.